All right, I'll read just a little bit from, uh, from the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were made by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Let's open our time in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of your people in generations and times gone by. We thank you for their faith and their trust in you that they uh, were willing to, to stand up and refuse to bow the knee to do what is evil. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would likewise have such courage and such faith that we might serve you faithfully in any time and any place uh, that you would call us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, last time I was with you, two weeks ago, we looked at the, the martyrs in Second Maccabees uh, chapter 6 and 7. And we also saw in Second Maccabees chapter 6 uh, some very helpful theological reflection on the issue of persecution. And so uh, the author of Second Maccabees said that these punishments were designed not to destroy, but to discipline our people. And uh, he says, speaking, uh, he was speaking of the Lord, he said, Therefore he never withdraws his mercy from us. Though he disciplines us with calamities, he does not forsake his own people. And so, just to mention uh, some of the particular martyrs that we saw, we saw Eleazar, the, the scribe, resist the appeal that was, that was made to him. If you recall, he was, he was told to, to, was commanded to, to eat swine's flesh, and uh, some came up to him and said, hey, just, just bring your own food, bring, bring something kosher, and, and then eat it, and just, just pretend like you're going along. And he refused. He didn't want to lead other people astray. He didn't want the, the young people to think that this old, venerable Jewish man had compromised, and so he was willing to, to die instead. And then in chapter 7, we saw the, the martyrdoms of those seven brothers and their mother for the same issue, refusing to eat swine. And uh, 2 Maccabees chapter 7 was especially noteworthy because they were explicitly looking forward to the resurrection. As one of the uh, brothers there said, I got these from heaven. He was stretching out his hands. He said, because of his laws, I disdain them. And from him, I hope to get them back again. And so, again, he was looking forward to the, the resurrection to come. And then we considered, uh, listed out some passages. We didn't have time to get through all of them. But some of the New Testament passages that uh, call upon us as Christians to suffer. And I think... Uh, again, particularly helpful in that regard is a passage from, uh, from John 15, beginning in verse 18 and stretching down through, uh, through chapter 16, verse 4. Very, very helpful. Jesus, Jesus warns us that, hey, they treated me like this. They're going to treat you like this. The time is coming when anyone who thinks that he kills you is going to think he's offering a service to God. And so we consider the issue of, uh, of suffering. And then that brings us to the subject of the day, which is the resistance to what was taking place. Now, to speak more technically, we might make a distinction between passive resistance and active resistance. The martyrs that we saw last time resisted, but they resisted passively. In other words, they didn't, they didn't obey the commands, but they didn't fight back. And so their resistance was one in which they refused to comply, and in refusing to comply, they chose to suffer whatever consequences the authorities might send their way. Now, as we continue uh, this morning in the text of 
1 Maccabees, we're going to uh, begin looking at the, the active resistance that, that took place. And uh, we're going to, to look today, Lord willing, to the resistance that took place up to the recapture of the temple. You remember the temple was, uh, was taken by the Greeks and they, they set up the abomination of desolation and offered these, uh, these pagan sacrifices and they had control of the temple. And uh, so we're going to, uh, to look at the text of 1 Maccabees up until the retaking of the temple. And then we're going to, to try to consider this, this issue of active resistance and particularly what went on here. And uh, then we'll see how far we get. Um, uh, we may have to revisit this issue next time, but we need to see if there's any, any legitimate application which we can draw from this. So um, I've given you only a, a portion of the text that we'll be uh, covering there in the handout. I, I probably should have mentioned this earlier in the series, but for those who are technologically savvy, uh, if you get onto like Bible Gateway or whatever on your phone, uh, they've, got, they've got the text of the Apocrypha there. So if, you, uh, if, you've got, if you've got your phone and you can do that kind of stuff, um, you can pull up First Maccabees 2, and uh, the, the text that I'll be reading from will be a little bit different from What's on your handout and what's, uh, what shows up? This is a, an ESV translation of the Apocrypha, and that's, that's not online. The, the one online is, uh, I think, uh, NRSV, New Revised Standards, so it'll be a little bit different, but no, uh, no big deal, I don't think. So uh, let, me, let me just begin uh, reading here from, from 1 Maccabees chapter 2, and we'll consider this issue of resistance. In those days, Mattathias, son of John, son of Simeon, a priest of the sons of Joarib moved from Jerusalem and settled in Modain. He had five sons, John, surnamed Gaddy, Simon, called Thassi, Judas, called Maccabeus, Eleazar, called Avarin, and Jonathan, called Aphas. He saw the blasphemies being committed in Judah and Jerusalem and said, Alas, why was I born to see this, the ruin of my people and the ruin of the holy city? And they lived there when it was given over to the enemy, the sanctuary given over to aliens. Her temple has become like a man without honor. Her glorious vessels have been carried into captivity. Her infants have been killed in the streets. Her youth by the sword of the foe. What nation has not possessed her in its kingdom and has not seized her spoils? All her adornment has been taken away. No longer free, she has become a slave. And behold, our holy place, our beauty, and our glory have been laid waste. The Gentiles have profaned them. Why should we live any longer? So you can hear this this cry of lament coming up from from Mattathias. He's uh, of the the family of the priests, and he uh, regrets having lived to see this day. And so this is verse 14 in Mattathias. And his sons rent their clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned greatly. Then the king's officers who were enforcing the apostasy came to the city of Modine to make them offer sacrifice. Many from Israel came to them, and Mattathias and his sons were assembled. Then the king's officers spoke to Mattathias as follows, You are a leader, honored and great in this city and supported by sons and brothers. Now be the first to come and do what the king commands, as all the Gentiles and the men of Judah And those who are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your sons will be numbered among the friends of the king. And you and your sons will be honored with silver and gold and many gifts. But Mattathias answered and said in a loud voice, Even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to do his commandments, departing each one from the religion of his fathers, Yet I and my sons and my brothers will live by the covenant of our fathers. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or to the left. When he had finished speaking these words, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice upon the altar in Modine, according to the king's command. When Mattathias saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and slaughtered him upon the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. Thus he burned with zeal for the law as Phinehas did 
against Zimri, the son of Salom. Now let me let me just stop there for a moment, and you can uh, you can you can see the scene that's happening there. The uh, the Jews are there, and the, the king's officer comes and says, "All right, it's time to sacrifice." And one Jew comes forward, and he does sacrifice. Mattathias had already said, "We're not we're not going along with this. We're not going to do it." One Jew comes forward to offer the sacrifice, and Mattathias uh, gets angry, kills the Jew, and also kills the king's officer who is enforcing the sacrifices. And the uh, the writer of First Maccabees here tips his hand and shows us his perspective on this. He he calls it righteous anger, and he frames it as Mattathias being a second Phineas. And now, if you think back to uh, to the book of Numbers, Phineas was the uh, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. Uh, so he's grandson of Aaron, who, uh, when the uh, the Midianite women were were uh, coming into the, the camp of Israel and encouraging uh, the men of Israel towards, towards immorality and idolatry. Phinehas is the one who speared a Midianite woman and an Israelite man. And what the author of 1 Maccabees is doing here is he's saying that what Phinehas did right there, Mattathias did right here. And Phinehas, as we know from the, from the text of Numbers, and you see it also in, uh, I'm trying to think, Psalm, Psalm 105 maybe, um, where, uh, where Phinehas is, is mentioned again. Um, and, and so the Old Testament is very clear that what Phinehas did was a, was a righteous thing, and our author here is implying that what Mattathias was doing is a righteous thing. Now, we'll, we'll come back and, and try to consider this a little bit more. Obviously, our author here is not inspired, so we've got to weigh what he says with a, with a grain of salt. But nonetheless, that's the way he is, is framing this. So... Uh, let's, let's keep on going there, verse, verse 27. Uh, then Mattathias cried out in the city with a loud voice, saying, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. And he and his sons fled to the hills and left all that they had in the city. Then many who were seeking righteousness and justice went down to the wilderness to dwell there, they, their sons, their wives, and their cattle, because evils pressed heavily upon them. And it was reported to the king's officers and the troops in Jerusalem, the city of David, that men who had rejected the king's command had gone down to the hiding places in the wilderness. Many pursued them, and overtaking them, they camped opposite them and prepared for battle against them on the Sabbath day. And they said to them, Enough of this. Come out and do what the king commands and you will live. But they said, We will not come out, nor will we do what the king commands and so profane the Sabbath day. Then the enemy hastened to attack them, but they did not answer them or hurl a stone at them or block up their hiding places. For they said, let us die in our innocence. Heaven and earth testify for us that you are killing us unjustly. So they attacked them on the Sabbath and they died with their wives and children and cattle to the number of 1,000 persons. Now this is that, uh, that incident that Jamie mentioned for us uh, last time I was with you a couple weeks ago, where uh, where you have these people who had who had come out and had uh, had said no, we're not not going to take part in all of this, and they come and attack them, and it happens to be a Sabbath, and in their understanding of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath day, they they thought that it would be sinful for them to fight back on the Sabbath. Now uh, my guess is that had they had this group been attacked any other day of the week, they would have been willing to fight back, but they're just based on their understanding of the Sabbath. They said, no, we're not, we're not going to fight back on the Sabbath, and they were killed. And so let's, let's notice now then what, uh, what Mattathias says in response to this. Verse 39, when Mattathias and his friends learned of it, they mourned for them deeply, and each said to his neighbor, if we all do as our brothers have done and refuse to fight with the Gentiles for our lives and our ordinances, they will quickly destroy us from the earth. So they made this decision that day. Let us fight against every man who comes to attack us on the Sabbath day, and let us not all die as our brothers died in their hiding places. Then there united with them a company of the Hasideans, mighty warriors of Israel, everyone who offered himself willingly for the law, and all who became fugitives to escape their troubles joined them and reinforced them. They organized an army and struck down sinners in their anger and lawless men in their wrath. 
The survivors fled to the Gentiles for safety, and Mattathias and his friends went about and tore down the altars. They forcibly circumcised all the uncircumcised boys that they found within the borders of Israel. They hunted down arrogant men, and the work prospered in their hands. They rescued the law out of the hands of the Gentiles and kings, and they never let the sinner gain the upper hand. And um, so it's very, very clear what, what they're doing here, right? They're, uh, they, they seem to be killing not only, not only Gentiles, but also apostate Jews and tearing down the, tearing down the altars. And uh, the, uh, the writer is very clear here that, that he approves. And uh, it's a kind of a wonderful expression there at the end of verse 48. They never let the sinner gain the upper hand. That kind of has a Kind of has a good ring to it, but uh, and so that's that's about all the the room that I had to get to get text on the page for you. But let me let me just keep reading, and we'll we'll see kind of how this how this unfolds, and then we'll we'll kind of uh, shift gears here in a bit to to get to an evaluation of things. Now the days drew near for Matthias to die, and he said to his sons, "Arrogance and reproach have now become strong. It is a time of ruin and furious anger. Now, my children, show zeal for the law." And give your lives for the covenant of our fathers. Remember the deeds of the fathers, which they did in their generations, and receive honor and an everlasting name. Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Joseph, in the time of his distress, kept the commandment and became lord of Egypt. Phinehas, our father, because he was deeply zealous, received the covenant of everlasting priesthood. Joshua, because he fulfilled the command, became a judge in Israel. Caleb, because he testified in the assembly, received an inheritance in the land. David, because he was merciful, inherited the throne of the kingdom forever. Elijah, because out of great zeal for the law, was taken up into heaven. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, we think of them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, believed and were saved from the flame. Daniel, because of his innocence, was delivered from the mouths of the lions. And so observe from generation to generation that none who hope in him will lack strength. Do not fear the words of a sinner, for his splendor will turn to dung and worms. Today he will be exalted, but tomorrow he will not be found, because he has returned to the dust and his plans will perish. My children, be courageous and grow strong in the law, for by it you will gain honor. Now behold, I know that Simeon your brother is wise in counsel. Always listen to him. He shall be your father. Judas Maccabeus has been a mighty warrior from his youth. He shall command the army for you and fight the battle against the peoples. You shall, you shall rally about you all who observe the law and avenge the wrong done to your people. Pay back the Gentiles in full and heed what the law commands. Then he blessed them and was gathered to his father. He died in the 146th year, which is 166 B.C., and was buried in the tomb of his fathers at Modine, and all Israel mourned for him with great lamentation. Then Judas, his son, who was called Maccabeus, took command in his place. All his brothers and all who had joined his father helped him, and they gladly fought for Israel. He extended the glory of his people. Like a giant, he put on his breastplate, and he girded on his armor of war and waged battles, protecting the host by his sword. He was like a lion in his deeds, and like a lion's cub roaring for prey. He searched out and pursued the lawless. He burned those who troubled his people. Lawless men shrank back for fear of him. All the evildoers were confounded, and deliverance prospered by his hand. He embittered many kings, but he made Jacob glad by his deeds. His memory is blessed forever. He went through the cities of Judah. He destroyed the ungodly out of the land. Thus he turned away wrath from Israel. He was renowned to the ends of the earth. He gathered in those who were perishing. But Apollonius gathered together Gentiles with a large force from Samaria to fight against Israel. When Judas learned of it, he went out to meet him, and he defeated and killed him. Many were wounded and fell, and the rest fled. Then they seized their spoils, and Judas took the sword of Apollonius and used it in battle the rest of his life. Now when Saron, the commander of the Syrian army, heard that Judas had gathered a large company, including a body of faithful men who stayed with him and went out to battle... He said, I will make a name for myself and win honor in the kingdom. I will make war on Judas and his companions who scorn the king's command. And again, a strong army of ungodly men went up with him to help him to take vengeance on the sons of Israel. When he approached the ascent of Beth Horan, Judas went out to meet him with a small company. 
But when they saw the army coming to meet him, they said to Judas, How can we, few as we are, fight against so great and strong a multitude? And we are faint, for we have eaten nothing today. Judas replied, It is easy for many to be hemmed in by few. For in the sight of heaven there is no difference between saving by many or by few. It is not the size of the army that victory in battle depends, but strength comes from heaven. They came against us in great pride and lawlessness to destroy us and our wives and our children's and to despoil us. But we will fight for our lives and our laws. He himself will crush them before us. As for you, do not be afraid of them. When he finished speaking, he rushed suddenly against Saron and his army, and they were crushed before him. They pursued him down the descent of Beth Horon to the plain. Eight hundred of them fell, and the rest of them fled into the land of the Philistines. Then Judas and his brothers began to be feared, and terror fell upon the Gentiles round about them. His fame reached the king, and the Gentiles talked of the battles of Judas. And, uh, and so there's uh, more, uh, more fighting, and uh, so we won't go into all of the details. Let me just jump ahead to a few verses uh, towards the middle of, of chapter 4 that bring us right up to the, the recapture of the temple uh, by Judas. And so this is First uh, Maccabees 4, 36 through uh, through 41. Then said Judas to his brothers, Behold, our enemies are crushed. Let us go up and cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. So all the army assembled, and they went up to Mount Zion, and they saw the sanctuary desolate, and the altar profaned, and the gates burned. In the courts they saw bushes sprung up as a thicket, or as on one of the mountains. They also saw the chambers of the priests in ruins. Then they rent their clothes and mourned with great lamentations and sprinkled themselves with ashes. They fell down on the ground and sounded a signal on the trumpets and cried out to heaven. Then Judas detailed men to fight against those in the citadel until he had cleansed the sanctuary. And so, so basically what we have here is we have, we have Mattathias kind of starting the rebellion, killing this apostate Jew, killing the king's officer, and uh, then leading, leading people kind of out, in, out into the wilderness to, to hide and hang out while this desolation came upon Israel. And then we saw this, this one group getting overrun on the Sabbath and refusing to fight on the Sabbath and being killed. Mattathias then says, hang on a minute. If we do like they did, they might kill us all and we might all be gone. And so he says, well, we're going to fight even if it's on the Sabbath. And then... Mattathias dies, and he puts his son, Judas Maccabeus, in, uh, into command. And just, uh, just to comment on the name Maccabeus, Maccabeus is derived from the, the Aramaic word meaning hammer. And so he's uh, getting this name because of his uh, warlike status, I suppose. And so, uh, and so Judas leads the people, and they're not, they're not taking anything, laying down. And then uh, eventually they, they're able to retake Jerusalem, retake the temple, and uh, we'll talk, uh, Lord willing, in the future about the, the cleansing of the temple uh, and, and therefore the, uh, the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. But, uh, but today we want to think about this issue of resistance. And so it's quite a, quite a different story this time from what we saw a couple weeks ago, right? A couple weeks ago, people took it laying down and they were, they were martyred. This time, people stood up and the other guy did the dying. And so how are, how are we supposed to think about this? As Christians, obviously our author of First Maccabees tipped his hand as to what he thought, but he's not inspired. He's, he's, he might be a great historian. He's not inspired. Uh, this is not inspired scripture. So we've got to take his opinion of what Judas did with a grain of salt. And so as we uh, think about this, the use of violence for the defense of their person and their religion and for their place of worship, there's there's a couple of couple of complicating factors uh, that, that go into it. At least in in my thinking about it, one is again this this not inspired, and so we've got to take him with a grain of salt. And the second complicating factor, in my view, is uh, is the issue of of authority, civil authority. It's one thing when you have a king like say Josiah who is on the throne of Judah, and when he's cleaning house, killing apostate, idolatrous priests, and, and so on, that's 
that's okay. It's, it's very clear that the Old Testament narrative uh, is, is, uh, is painting Josiah in, in a good light in doing that. And indeed, that was what he was supposed to do. As, as the king in Judah, in its theocracy, he was supposed to be rooting out idolatry and putting idolaters to death. He was doing what he was supposed to be doing, and that was good and honorable. And we don't even need any comments or hints from the Old Testament historical author of Second Kings or Second Chronicles that, that tells us those things. We, we know from the Old Testament law that the king was supposed to be suppressing idolatry and preserving the Old Testament religion of the Jewish people. Now, in the case of, of Mattathias here, the, the situation is, is very different, right? They're under the civil government of the, of the Greeks, of the, the Seleucid dynasty. And Mattathias and his sons were not the royal family. They were of the priests. And so this was armed resistance, you could say, against the powers that be, against the civil government. And the resistance was also offensive. It wasn't just, we're going we're gonna to hang out here, you attack us, we'll kill you. They, they might have done that some, but, but a lot of the time it was, it was an offensive, right? They, they retook Jerusalem, retook the temple from the pagans. And so I think to, to start in evaluating this, we ought to look to the, the prophecies of Daniel and see if Daniel gives us any hint there as to whether, whether this was a good thing or a bad thing or just an indifferent thing on which he says is going to happen but doesn't particularly comment one way or the other. So let's, uh, let's take a look at the text of Daniel and we'll start, in, uh, we'll start in Daniel 8, and we'll, we'll look at uh, kind of the, the relevant portion uh, for considering the issue here. Um, so this is, uh, this is Daniel 8, uh, starting in verse 9. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the beautiful land. It grew up toward the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. It removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And so this is prophecy about Antiochus and his ilk coming into, uh, coming into the temple, putting a stop to the regular sacrifice, and so on. Verse 12, And on account of the transgression of the host... Uh, On account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And so so we we understand what what the text is about. It's about Antiochus desolating the temple, and then at the end, uh, they... They ask the question, how, how long is this going to happen? And then the answer comes, verse 14, 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And so uh, there's nothing in this text that is given by way of command. There's nothing in this text that, that Judas would read and see, okay, this commands me to fight or to, to do something. And there's nothing here that explicitly praises the restoration of the temple as a good and godly thing. But I would say that praise is implied. In other words, I think that uh, this is not necessarily a morally neutral prophecy, simply stating that certain things are going to happen without any kind of moral judgment on them. It's very clear that the desolation of the temple is a bad thing, and if that's a bad thing, then it would stand to reason that the cleansing of the temple and the restoration of the sacrifices is a good thing. And so uh, translations uh, somewhat differ there at the end of verse 14. New American Standard uh, says that the holy place will be properly restored. Um, The uh, footnote, uh, at least in the New American Standard, says uh, vindication. And so it seems like like this is stated as a good thing, that it's it's ultimately restored. And then we need to, to step back and think, well, okay, how did we get here? How did, how did the temple get restored? Well, 
it got restored because Mattathias and his sons stood up and fought and went on the offensive and eventually recaptured Jerusalem and eventually recaptured the temple, secured the temple, cleansed it, and restored the biblical sacrifices. Now let's, let's flip over and look to, to Daniel 11 because I think, I think we get a little bit more, uh, more insight here into the situation in Daniel 11. Let's look at uh, verses 31 to 35. And so, uh, so again, it starts talking about what happens with Antiochus, and then, uh, then the tide starts to turn uh, a bit as we, as we get on down a few verses. So forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God and display... Uh, Excuse me, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity, by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help. And many will join them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, in verse 32 of Daniel 11, we're told that the people who know their God in this time frame will display strength and take action. So who are these people who know their God? Well, I think I would, I think I would agree with John Gill in his commentary on this verse when he said that, that this applies both to the martyrs and to the Maccabees, that it applies to both those who passively resisted and to those who actively resisted. And then in verse 34, it is said that they will be granted a little help. And so who was it that was helping the people of God during this dark period? It was, it was the Maccabees. How were, they, how were they helping? They helped the people by revolting against their pagan overlords and reestablishing the legitimate Worship of God, and then it speaks there in uh, in verse thirty four. Um, Many will join with them in hypocrisy, and indeed there were some who joined with the Maccabees in in hypocrisy. They weren't all uh, forthright, godly Jewish people seeking uh, the glory of God. Some were seeking glory for themselves. Second uh, Maccabees thirteen twenty one mentions a guy who was essentially an undercover spy for the Greeks. Um, some were idolaters, and so in uh, Second Maccabees 12, and uh, Lord willing, I hope to hope to touch on this at some point later on. You have uh, you have some men who had been killed, who were Jewish men fighting with Judas Maccabees. They were killed in battle, and then after they were killed, they found uh, they found some idols in in their possession, some idolatrous paraphernalia in their possession, and so so it was clear that these men were not forthright godly. Jews, they were, uh, they were joining, as it were, in hypocrisy. Now Calvin, in his commentary, uh, has some, some interesting things to say here on Daniel 11. He, says, he speaks in reference to the little help there in verse 34 that they will be granted. And he says this, Without the slightest doubt, the angel speaks here of the Maccabees, by whose assistance the faithful were gathered together and completely separated from those apostates who had betrayed God's temple and worship, he calls the help small, and truly it was so. For what could the Maccabees do to resist Antiochus? The powerful influence of this king is well known. And what was Judea when compared with Syria? The Jews indeed had destroyed their own power. We have already seen how they violated treaties, corrupted the majority of their own people. There was neither skill nor plan nor concert among them. The help then was small, which God sent them. But the angel shows how God would afford succor to his people when in distress and allow them some alleviation from the cruelty of the tyrant. And so it seems then that we do have some statements here in Daniel 11 that speak approvingly of the Maccabees. It seems then that in general the Maccabees were, were on the right track. Now Calvin uh, goes on and he offered some nuanced comments on the situation as a whole, that just because the Maccabees are on the right track 
doesn't mean we have to read the whole entire narrative of the Maccabees and put our stamp of approval on every single thing that they did. Calvin says this, he says, This passage may lead us to inquire whether the angel approved of all the exploits of the Maccabees. We may reply to the question in two opposite ways. First of all, if anyone persists in contending from the angel's words for God's approval of every action of the Maccabees, this view is by no means correct. God might use the Maccabees in succoring the wretched Israelites, and yet it does not follow that they conducted the good cause properly and lawfully. It very often occurs when the faithful offer their services to God and have one object set before them that they fail, either through inconsiderate zeal or through partial ignorance. Whether we take this view or not, our object is often good when our manner of proceeding is objectionable. And thus it was with the Maccabees. God doubtless stirred up Mattathias to collect the dispersed remnant of the people to restore his worship and to purge his temple from the abominations which Antiochus had set up. Yet, in the troublous times which occurred, his sons doubtless failed in many points of duty. The cause which they undertook was just, while particular actions of theirs cannot be approved by us. And so, fundamentally, I think I would agree with Calvin's analysis there, that the cause was just, but that doesn't mean that we have to stamp our approval on absolutely everything that they did in executing that just and right cause of theirs. We can grant that they were on the right track without absolutely uh, condoning everything that they did to accomplish the end goal. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this in the sermon tonight uh, from the text of Judges chapter 21. Now, just stepping back, I would say that I wish Calvin would have been a little bit more specific about which actions he felt like uh, of the Maccabees were, were not condoned and which ones were uh, approved uh, by God, I, I wish he would have would have gone a little bit little bit further and, and kind of fleshed things out for us. And so, uh, and so I think I think though that that's a fundamentally helpful analysis. That it seems that the, the text of Daniel eleven does does paint the Maccabees as being on the right track. But that doesn't necessarily mean that absolutely everything that they did was uh, just and praiseworthy. And so, any any questions or comments? Kind of getting up to there. I realize that's that might be a lot to process, but any any comments or questions, Stan? Nothing anybody does except for the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think uh, you know if we can just those of us who are parents, think about think about disciplining our children, right? And correcting them. That's a that's a good and right thing to do. How often though does sin enter into our hearts in the way that that is that, that is played out, and and you're right. Every every action of ours is is going to be mixed, um, and so so yeah, that's that's uh, that's a helpful helpful thing to, to throw out there. Jamie. Yep, that's that's what's coming in point four. So, um, anything anything else before we before we get to point four? All right. So, kind of having established that, it seems like these prophecies in Daniel speak approvingly of the the general course of the Maccabees. Then we want to step back and see what significance, if any, does this have for us. In other words. Was this something that was right and good for them in general? Not, not everything they did necessarily, but in general, was this right and good for them, but for some reason or another, not good for us? Or does the fact that the main trajectory of the Maccabees was approved in these prophecies mean that in some circumstances, even some that we could potentially face someday ourselves, that such actions are good and right in the sight of God? Now, in... Considering this, we need to acknowledge this is a tricky question because we're asking questions about kind of a whole, a whole range of things. So we're asking questions about war, violence, killing, self-defense, and so on. And given the religious nature of what was going on here in the Maccabees, we're also asking questions of whether under some circumstances it might be acceptable to fight for the sake of religion, to fight for the sake of 
of Christianity. It almost feels wrong from the get-go to, uh, to put it that way, but that's, that's kind of the issue that we're, that we're thinking about here. So just to kick the discussion off, I'd like to uh, point out a few Reformation resources that essentially answered this question with a yes. Yes, we can use violence. Yes, we can fight for uh, the defense of Christianity and, and so on. And they appealed to the Maccabees to do so. And so we need to understand that, uh, that these men are functioning uh, with a different view of church-state relations than what is the law of the land here. But let's, let's hear them out nonetheless. So, uh, for example, Heinrich Bullinger of, uh, of Zurich in, the, uh, in his book called The, the Decades, which is kind of... Kind of like a systematic theology. It's not, not laid out exactly like a systematic theology, but it covers kind of the same, same material that a systematic theology would. And he is uh, given an exposition of the Ten Commandments, and he speaks of just causes for war. And in his view, the care of religion belonged to the civil magistrates, and therefore it was appropriate for magistrates to punish apostates by war, and he cited Deuteronomy 13 as, as his text, and he went on to say, he said, if the magistrates be commanded to punish apostates by war, then it is lawful for him by war to defend the church in danger, to be drawn uh, by any barbarous prince from true religion unto false idolatry. Joshua would by war have suppressed the Reubenites, with their confederates for building an altar against God's commandment. And so you remember at the end, at the end of the book of Joshua, after the, the tribes from the, the east side of the Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and some of the tribe of Manasseh had, had finished helping their, their brothers conquer the, uh, the promised land, they, they went back to, to their side of the Jordan and they, they built up an altar and, and everybody was like, whoa, 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 what is going on here? And Joshua is just about getting ready to, to fight them until... Until they make it clear, hey, this is we're not we're not offering sacrifices here. This is just this is just a memorial to say that you know we went over and helped you guys. To uh, this is just for the purpose of remembrance. And so, uh, so he appeals to Joshua, and then he says, Judas Maccabeus fought for the people of God against the people and soldiers of King Antiochus, who purposed to tread down the Jewish religion, which at that time was the true worship of God, and perforce to make all men receive and profess his heathenish superstition. And uh, Bullinger later goes on to give uh, a list of some upright wars and what he called some excellent kings and captains, and he gives a list of uh, several Old Testament examples, and then he says, Among these, Judas Maccabeus hath not the last nor least place of all who fought very stoutly for the law, religion, and the people of God, and died at the last in the midst of the battle in defense of religion and his country quarrel. And so it's pretty clear that Bullinger thinks that under, under the right circumstances, Judas Maccabeus is worthy of imitation. Um, it's also noteworthy that Theodore Beza, who was a dear friend and eventual successor of John Calvin in Geneva, thought similarly uh, in Theodore Beza's Confession of Faith from 1577, he deals with the issue of how the church ought to respond in the case of the tyranny of a civil magistrate. And, in other words, what is the Christian response when the magistrate, the civil government, in other words, is a tyrant? Now, unfortunately, I've not been able to find uh, Beza's Confession of 1577 in English, and so I'm relying on a secondary source as a synopsis, but according to the synopsis given, uh, as Beza tries to answer that question, he makes a, makes a few distinctions, and distinctions I think are are very critical when you're when you're thinking about this because there's all kinds of different nuances to to different situations. And so Beza says that if a tyrant is a foreign tyrant, in other words, if you've got a foreign enemy invading your country, then that the magistrates of the country that is being oppressed can defend themselves against foreign tyranny. Sounds reasonable enough. And he says that when the magistrates of the oppressed country do not take a stand, in other words, let's say we were being attacked, Christianity was being suppressed by a foreign source, and the government and the army was just standing down and not standing up to the threat, he would say that in a situation like that, uh, that even a private citizen can take action when God makes a way. 
And in that connection, he cites with approval the example of Mattathias here in 1 Maccabees chapter 2. And he goes on and says that if the rightful magistrate of a country becomes a tyrant, then uh, he says that superior magistrates can, uh, can rise up and take action against him, but he says that the lower magistrates and private citizens must not take action against their own civil government, but rather that they should patiently endure, uh, endure wrongs if they're kind of the upper echelon of their magistrates don't take action. And I, I guess to, to comment just briefly here on Beza, I don't, I don't fully understand the, the system of government that he's, that he's thinking about. He's obviously thinking about some superior magistrate who's being a tyrant, then you have below them some superior, uh, kind of a mid-level magistrate. He'd say it's okay for these guys to... Uh, to deal with the, the upper level tyranny, but then he's saying you've got guys down here at the bottom level who are magistrates and private citizens. He says that these guys should not try to to attack the upper crust. And so, um, I I mean I don't I don't know if kind of a rough analogy would be like federal, state, and local government, where uh, you know if 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 that's what if if that would be an approximation of what Beza was talking about that if you had federal tyranny, it would be okay for states to, to deal with it, but not, not local governments, not, not counties and cities to, uh, to stand up for themselves and not private citizens to, to fight. But, but at any rate, Beza, Beza did appeal to, uh, to Mattathias under, under some circumstances for, uh, for a private citizen to, uh, to take action against tyranny. And uh, one third example is that the... Uh, the Maccabees were appealed to by the, the Lutherans of the city of Magdeburg in the Magdeburg Confession of 1550. Now, the situation in Magdeburg takes a little bit of explaining because this, the city of Magdeburg was the kind of the holdout Protestant city in Germany after the Schmalkaldic War. And so the situation was that after, after Luther's death, uh, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, wanted to... Uh, to do away with, with Lutheranism within, within Germany. And so, uh, and so there was a war where you had a couple of, uh, a couple of Lutheran uh, princes, territorial princes of, uh, who, who were Lutheran themselves and their territories were Lutheran. And so uh, Philip of Hesch would have been one of these. Uh, John, uh, the elector John Frederick of Saxony would have been another one of these. And so these, these Lutheran men were, uh, were in what they called the Schmalkaldic League. And so it was basically... A Protestant defensive association. If we're attacked by the emperor, we're going to fight back. And uh, so Emperor Charles V uh, made war against these, these Lutherans, and he, he defeated them. And uh, just as a, a side note, there's a, uh, a story, and, and it's, it's debated whether this is true, so don't, don't take this as absolute truth, but there was a story that when, that when Charles V uh, went into to Wittenberg, they eventually captured Wittenberg, and Charles V went into, went into Wittenberg, and he was standing there with one of his generals, and his general said, hey, Luther's buried over there. Luther would have been in the grave for probably about a year at this point. He said, Luther's buried over there. Let's, let's dig him up and burn his body. And in, according to the story, it's an interesting story, but again, take it with a grain of salt. Charles V said, I make war with the living, not with the dead. And uh, one historian looking at Charles V, looking, looking back at Charles V, said that that was the closest he ever came to religious toleration, was to say that I make war with the living and not with the dead. And so, and so anyways, Charles V wins the Schmalkaldic War. He defeats the, the Lutheran princes. city of Magdeburg... Uh, Held, held out. It, it basically kind of, kind of pulled, this, pulled the surrounding towns into it, shut up the walls, and prepared for a siege. And, uh, and there was a siege. I forget if it was a year, year and a half long. And uh, the Magdeburgers would say that they, that they were never actually beaten. They, they eventually kind of came to terms with, with the attacking army. And, uh, and so they, they never officially like, surrendered. They, they were offered terms. And uh, and that was that was the end of it. And so, as as things were, were gearing up for this standoff, uh, the pastors of Magdeburg put together uh, what's called the the Magdeburg Confession, and it contained a confession of their Christian faith and also a lengthy justification of their resistance. And at one point, the confession stated this: it "says therefore, just as." At the time, Mattathias, 
by freeing the consciences of the rest of the pious, armed them to fight against the king for their lives, as he himself said, and for the righteous ordinances of their God, lest they perish from the earth, so we, in our similar trouble and peril, ought to free the consciences of our men from this vain bogeyman which is thrown up, that defense has not been granted by God against superiors. And we ought to encourage our people to be themselves imitators of the law and to give their minds to the witness of our God, if perchance God may look on us with favor and give us some such outcome as he gave the Maccabees, as we hope and pray. But this doctrine, which we hand down about the legitimate defense of a lower magistrate against the superior one, seeks uh, against a superior one who seeks the extirpation of the gospel in the true church, if the ignorant crowd should abuse it on occasion, uh, the uh, greater destruction or harm of our enemies, that is not a reason why that abuse should be imputed to the gospel or us. In other words, if people misuse this, this doctrine of a lower magistrate, in this case, city government, and therefore the cities of a soldier, kind of a local militia, if you will, uh, resisting, they say if, if people abuse this, abuse this doctrine and use it wrongly, that's, that's not our fault. What we're doing here is legitimate. We've got a civil government. We're standing up for ourselves. And later on, they say, they say this, Last, if anyone requests examples of this sort of defense by inferiors against superiors, he will find plenty and suitable ones enough if he makes a summary of the deeds recorded in sacred histories, ecclesiastical and pagan. The deeds of the Maccabees are nicely fitting in this connection, since they were conquered and at that time under the empire of King Antiochus. Nonetheless, since he desired to make a single common religion among all nations and was forcing the people of God to worship idols, they resisted him and defended both their own lives as well as the law or worship of God as it is expressly written there. In other words, 1 Maccabees 2. And, and so, and so the, uh, the pastors of Magdeburg are, are very clear that we're not, we're not taking this laying down. We're, we're going we're gonna to fight for, uh, for the preservation of our religion. But it does also bear out saying that the Magdeburg is, is equally clear that if they were just granted the ability to, to worship God as they saw fit, then the quarrel would be over. They said they, they were not fighting to try to, to do any kind of regime change. They were not trying to knock the crown off of the Holy Roman Emperor's head or anything like that. They said, if you, if you let us continue... In our worship, that's all we're asking for. And so they, they say this. They say, we will give you. They, they're appealing to, to the Holy Roman Emperor. They say, we will give from our churches the greatest possible number of men who, if they be able to enjoy their own religion through you, will declare their obedience toward you in all owed and upright duties and loyalty without hypocrisy, out of true love, not so much love of receiving fruit from you as of love to you yourself perhaps more than all those who say they are obedient to you, so that you mistakenly mark us for the crime of contumacy and rebellion. Although we are not able to look into the hearts of individuals, still, let us plainly affirm about this city's general attitude and will that except for the preservation of our religion, nothing else is sought. That when this is gained, our Senate and citizens will be most obedient in all their proper duties according to your majesty's laws, if the public's attitude and will did not seem altogether this way to us, rest assured that we would either force uh, uh, we would either force this church to desist from what it has begun, or by excommunication according to the command of Christ, or else we would shake the dust off of our feet and leave this city. In other words, they're saying that all we want here is the preservation of religion as we understand it according to the word of God. If you give us that, that's great. If we had thought that the people in our city were seeking something else in this, we would excommunicate them or we would leave. And so they, they have a very interesting attitude and, and it's just for the preservation of religion. And so uh, any questions or comments just on those, those examples of kind of Reformation sources appealing to, to the Maccabees? Jamie? 
Yeah. Mm. Well, now, now with Beza, yeah, with with Beza, I I don't I don't I don't fully I don't fully understand what I, I don't I don't fully understand how he's how he's making his distinctions. And like I said, I I could I could find a Latin version of it, but I, I can't read Latin. I mean, I can make out a few Latin words, but but I can't I can't read it to understand what's going on. And so there might be there might be actually more information there than, than what I could find in the synopsis of it. And so so with, with Beza, I don't I don't I don't quite I don't quite get the distinction that, that he's trying to make and how that how that actually works with consistency. Um, now but but I I would say though that that with respect to with respect to the, the Magdeburgers, their their position seems to be seems to be very different in that they're they're not they're not seeking a, a revolution. All that they're trying to do is saying, "Hey, this is this is our town. Let us let us worship God as as we understand the scriptures. And you you give us that, we're on your side." And um, and so and so yeah, there's 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 all kinds of, of various distinctions in terms of in terms of who the who the oppressor is. Is it a private oppressor or is a is it a, a like a governmental Oppression, and then the second thing is uh, is the issue of who's who's leading the offensive or the defense against that. Is it just a private group of people huddled together? We're Christians. They're they're attacking us. We're gonna we're gonna stand our ground. Or is it a, a civil government saying, "Hey, we're not we're not having this. You, you can't you can't do that to to our people. We're going to to defend our our people." And um, and Obviously, as as you mentioned, there's there's issues of uh, of, of self defense that that come in come into play, um, and we don't have we don't have time to uh, to dig into the the question of self defense. I I think it's a good good question to pursue, and maybe maybe we ought to do that next time. I'll I'll think about that. But uh, but but yeah, there's 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 kind of several different levels of of things, and I think I think we got to weigh each case on its own merit as to as to who the as to who the oppressor is and then what the uh, what the right response then would be and so we're we're actually pushing time I think I think this is a good conversation and I think I think we'll probably need to extend it on into into next week to think think a little bit more about about this but any anybody else have any uh, closing closing comments or questions on the on the issue here Jamie? Yeah, and and one of the one of the interesting things that I was that I was looking at this uh, this week, and uh, you're, you're better you're better at Greek than I am, so maybe maybe you could tell me. But it's, it was interesting in in Revelation 13 when you have when you have the beast coming up against believers. It's said that the beast made war. Now I don't I don't know if if it's legitimate to say that somebody makes war when the other side is not fighting back. <laughs> like if if uh, you know, if 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 I'm attacked and I don't fight back, can can it be legitimately said that they made war against me? Well, maybe. Um, and at least I found at least one commentator who who seemed to think that war in Revelation 13 could imply that there is that there is an actual fight that believers are fighting the forces of of Antichrist. And so um, so I'll just kind of 
kind of throw that out there as a, as a question that I don't necessarily have the, the answer to. But, but yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, try to, we'll try to come back. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll try to think a little bit more about this, this issue of, uh, of resistance. And I'll, give you, uh, I'll try to give you some, some tentative conclusions of mine. And uh, I'm open to uh, open further discussion. So if there's, if there's nothing else, I'll, I'll close for us in prayer. All right, let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us insight into your word. And Lord, we ask that you would help us, that, uh, that we would live in times of peace. Lord, none of us wants to seek violence or anything of that sort. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us peace in our times, that we might serve you faithfully here in, uh, in our land and in the church. And, Lord, that we and our families would, would be safe from all evil. But Lord, we pray that you would give us great, great wisdom according to your word, that we would know how to, uh, to respond in cases when there might not be peace. We pray that you give us great wisdom, great insight, and Lord, let us always know that it is far better to be with you than to be here in this sinful world. We pray that you would fill our hearts with hope, not of an earthly kingdom, but of your eternal kingdom. We praise you for Christ and his great work for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.